Hi, James. Ben, how are you? You know, I wonder if there was trepidation if the return was going to be a one-time event, especially because the following week we were, we were not there. Uh, yes, and well, I guess the answer to that is here we are. So here we are. Hope, hopefully, we we may be interrupted. There. So this is actually kind of a funny story. We're we're starting a bit late because there is a basketball court uh, right be, right behind my house. There's a park be, behind my outside my window, and which is great. It's beautiful. I have a nice view. The the and right now it's winter, and so they are apparently replacing the pavement on the basketball court. Unfortunately, that means they have to first take up all the old pavement on the basketball court. So there's one of those pile driver things just going nuts. And so we were scheduled to record. I'm like, this isn't going to happen. So I go down there and I talk to the guy. I'm like, hey, you know, because they usually take a lunch break. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're going to take a rest. He's like, oh, at, at 12 o'clock. So I'm trying to scramble because I have another appointment after this. Can I figure this out? Blah, blah, blah. And, but I remembered as I was walking away from him, I kind of heard the engine kind of wheezing as he's trying to start it back up after talking to me. And then I got back to my house. I'm like, you know what? That engine never started back up. <laughs> So I think I went to ask him when they're going to rest. He turned off his engine to talk to me, and I magically actually created the space to record this podcast because mm. it's now broken. <laughs> mm, uh, well, if it does fire back up, it's going to be the 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 uh, the most recent version of the garbage truck song. It's not probably going to sound as nice as the like the chiming in the background. It's going to sound more like a pile driver, but uh, we'll 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 see how we go. Well, anyhow, our, our, uh, my, my condolences to the poor the poor guy trying to fix his file driver right now. But but also my appreciation for giving us space to record. So mm, indeed, anyhow, uh, we have been away for two weeks. I'm, as we mentioned, we came back. We're going to kind of come back on a bit of a part time basis for now. Mm. Uh, yeah, not that's not necessarily permanent either. But that's where we are at for now. And you were traveling last week, and we will both be traveling for over over the Christmas break. So this will be the last one for 2018. But but I don't think it would be the last one forever. So, so we appreciate everyone that has stuck around through the through the break and then stuck around through last week, and we'll stick around through Christmas. Yes, uh, hopefully this tides you over wherever you're heading for Christmas. We'll see what we can do for you guys. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, and, and we've mentioned this, but we, you know we've continued our conversations, kind of just not recorded them, and and it, the we, we have two potential things to talk about in the context of what I've been writing at Trajectory, but it, they're kind of connected because there's definitely mm. a sort of a a thread about aggregation theory that runs through them, and I think both of them are are probably a little bit in our wheelhouse. So I thought we'd start with uh, two weeks ago, and I think we'll sort of meander our way through some of the stuff that that I wrote about this week. Sounds good. Something that I was thinking about, and it was in the context of Uber potentially buying some scooter companies, mm. and was was this idea of, you know, that's always made a lot of sense to me. When I first wrote about scooters, I, think, I guess it was earlier this year, I mean, it's been a pr- relatively recent phenomena. My sort of prediction was that this will end up being a part of Uber and being be, being a part of, of that sort of category, and, and to sort of... You, you fleshed out why it's because, well, they're both about sort of getting somewhere. And that sort of reminds me of sort of a, a classic sort of framework about product development, which is the jobs to be done framework. And if you think about it, if you need to go somewhere, you know, there are lots of ways to get there. You like you you are not when you're thinking about I have a meeting across town, you're not thinking I I, I need a car per se, you are thinking, I need to get across town. And then the means by which you do that could and and I think eventually will vary and there will be lots of options in that space. But th- th- what is the job to be done? The job to be done is not to get a car. The job to be done is to is transportation. 
Right. It's so interesting how these jobs unfold and then the companies that do it best position over the top of the job such that or the products do such a good job that they position over the top of the job and they almost become a default. 10 years or 15 years ago, it would have been, I need a car or I need a taxi. And now that muscle memory almost is completely changed to you pull out your phone and the likelihood is you're tapping one of two buttons. It's Uber or Lyft. And, and that is the, that is almost most like the associated muscle memory with getting that job done. Right. And what's this is why folks were so off. I mean, I think Uber's valuation is, is a fascinating sort of open question. It's really sort of a shame that the the Uber question about was Uber really ever worth what it was will probably never be answered satisfact- satisfactorily because of the sort of, you mm. know, the, the PR year from hell, which quite literally saved Lyft, right? Lyft was on the market. Mm. They were looking for a buyer. They, 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 they were having trouble raising more money. And it, like Uber brought their greatest competitor back from the dead for all intents and purposes. And frankly, you know, cut off billions and billions worth of market sh- of sort of valuation in the process. And, and it's, it's, so it's kind of hard to know what Uber Uber in sort of an alternate timeline, what Uber on its sort of trajectory would have been worth. And so we'll never get the answer to sort of like, were the different people with different valuations right Mm -hmm. or wrong? But we do know that the folks at the very early parts of Uber, when they're valued at like $10 billion or $15 billion, and we're like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. How does it make sense? That they, they, I think it's safe to say they were probably, they were probably wrong. And I think the reason where the error so often comes in these areas is you, you take Uber and you compare it to say, like, what's the size of the current taxi market, right? Mm-hmm. But the value of Uber is not just to replace taxis because that is getting constrained. You're thinking about the market in terms terms of the products on the market. But if you think about it in terms of jobs to be done, the transportation market is massive. And Uber, to the extent it's taken over for not just taxis, but also personal cars, for also you know other sorts of transportation, whatever they may be, that means its market is actually much larger than the taxi market. And, and those that were limiting themselves to the taxi market were sort of, they were measuring a proxy instead of measuring the actual job. So it looks very similar to the taxi market in so many respects, but really you end up displacing the way it works at an individual level is I use Uber so much that I start to not buy a car and the money that would have gone to the automotive manufacturers now goes to Uber instead. It's similar when these disruptions take root that you kind of try and find the equivalent to what it looks like in terms of functionality and assume that the market won't grow any bigger than that. And another great example is the the cell phone to the smartphone market, if you just valued how much smartphones were worth by looking at the cell phone market, you would not have come to the conclusion that the iPhone would end up being the most profitable product in of all time. It was because it grew out of the functionality of just phones and started to extend and take share and disrupt laptops and desktop computers. And that enabled the, the size of that product category to grow as it started to subsume the jobs that products in other categories used to do. Some folks were focused on the iPhone and think about it as being a sustaining technology, right? That that it's going to be, it's it's a new way to do cell phones. But actually, the market phones, like those are just those are just a form factor, right? The mm-hmm. actual market is personal computing, and mm-hmm. and when you think about the personal computing market, it not only was it much larger in sort of monetary value than the cell phone market, but 
there was actually dramatic room to expand the definition of personal computing itself once you were no longer tethered to a laptop or to your desk or whatever mm. it might be. And that's where all that's where all the value was. And and again, it's so easy to make mistakes and it's so natural. It's the human instinct mm. to look for sort of a corollary. What's something that came before that we can compare this to to mm. understand it? But the true sort of breakthrough items and, and the outsized valuations come from expanding the definition of sort of what a job to be done is and then capturing that part of the market, not replacing a product that happened, a form factor that came before. Right. And it's, it is really hard to imagine. I mean, you think back to 10 years ago now and the, the iPhone had just launched, but this idea that services like Uber and Lyft were even possible in, in a world of laptop and desktop computers, it makes no sense. But when you have this uh, digital computer that effectively becomes a a proxy for for you and your life and your position and your location and what you're doing right now, it completely unlocks a whole bunch more uses. And then it becomes more and more important uh, to your life. Like it becomes the window through which you view your digital world. And, and the point that you've made all along that I think you've done so well is given the amount of time that people spend on it, the experience of what that device is going to be like becomes so important. And it's, it's enabled Apple to charge a premium for delivering a fantastic experience. So I don't want to spend too much time on here talking about Uber. I mean, heaven knows we've talked about Uber on, on, X, <laughs> on X1 and Plenty. And, you know, it is of, like, I think the last time we talked about, it, I mentioned it's going to be so fascinating to watch, in part because it's so weird you have sort of sort of a, an opportunity and one company is clearly winning, and then you take, like, a massive dose of just pure uncertainty and inject it into the situation. Mm. But that's basically what happened. And so, you know, we're going to have to sort of, sort, sort of wait and see. But the this idea i sort of had this light bulb moment while thinking about this which is you know uber's job is not hiring a car uber's job is transportation and you combine that with the idea i'm thinking about uber as being an aggregator where they're they're going to have the customers that are looking to go somewhere and they'll be able to give them different means and that gives them an advantage relative to just a sort of pure play like a pure scooter company along those lines and and, and it's suddenly sort of clicked where there's this aspect of of aggregation theory where i said aggregators start out by having the best user experience and that user experience brings users onto their platform which brings suppliers onto their platform which makes the user experience better so on and so forth and sort of the you know, that user experience term has always been a little sort of fuzzy. I, I've spent more time saying what it isn't in that it's not like the user interface. It's like the totality of it because that's why suppliers coming on make it more valuable. Like your your friends and family coming on to Facebook overwhelm whatever frustrations you have with the Facebook user interface, just to use use one example. Mm-hmm. But but I've never actually defined what what is the user experience. And it's the job to be done. It, like the, the aggregator that wins is the one that gets the job done and they get the job done in such an effective way that they get users on their platform that brings on more suppliers that enhances their ability to do the job or expands the definition of that job such that they bring on even more users. And that's what gets sort of the virtual virtual cycle going on. So Uber starts out famously with black cars, right? And that got the job done for a very small segment of, uh, of the population, particularly in San Francisco. And that got that initial user base coming on. And then they add on a more expansive sort of offerings for cars to use. And then they had Uber pool and now they had scooters. But but still, the job all along has been transporting people. And that's the sort of the, 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 the locus around which the, the sort of aggregator market sort of forms. And if you back up, 
this actually starts to make sense with 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 all of them. You think about Google, like it was just finding a web page, and then people come on, and we've talked about this whole this whole sort of virtuous cycle, and then it becomes you know finding fi- finding uh, places to shop or finding places to visit or or traveling or like the the jobs that were done sort of expanded, but the entire job was to to find information. You know, Facebook started out your college classmates were on there, then expanded. Well, your your college class. People at other colleges are on there. Then your friends and family are on there. And the ex- the expanding definition was all mm. captured in the job of being connected with people. Now, I, I arguably, Facebook has transitioned past that to being a place to sort of waste time. Like that's <laughs> that's probably where the real value has really come in over the past few years. Mm. But it's the same thing. You waste time on Facebook, see what your friends are up to. Well, now you waste time looking at a quiz or looking at an article or looking at pictures. And that it's the same sort of cycle where they are doing that job, the job of wasting time. People just open up their phone and they open Facebook without even thinking about it. Mm. And, and, and that is the user experience that gives them the sort of grip on the market. I think the merging of the two things, uh, the two theories makes sense for a lot of reasons. And you think about aggregation theory and it's so much of it is driven by the individual individual's behavior and individuals opting into this service because it provides the best at doing something. And and the jobs to be done framework seems like an excellent way at getting at exactly what it is that they're looking for. There's some interesting stuff around jobs to be done. I mean, I've been exposed to it quite a bit through Professor Christensen. And there are some interesting nuances around it that I think are helpful in diving into these specific examples. And the Facebook one, you, you you described it as wasting time. I would I would I would tweak that a little bit. It's it's interesting to think about how a job arises. And rather than people looking for opportunities to waste time, I think the job is oftentimes more like, oh, I'm in a line waiting for something, or I'm on the bus and I have two minutes to kill. It's not so much I'm going around looking to waste time. It's like this time is kind of empty time where I don't have anything to entertain me. So so help me, help entertain me for two minutes while I have some time to kill. And in that sense, Facebook is competing with other games on your phone or perhaps Twitter on your phone or perhaps the New York Times app. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. To be clear, I, I like I like calling it wasting time mostly to uh, poke Facebook. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's a you make a really good point that, and, and this is I think critical to understand Facebook. Just I mean, just as sort of a side note, not everything has to be sort of intentional with it done with intentionality. There's there's big mm. parts of your life and your job that are not intentional but are tremendously valuable. I mean, I, the we first talked about jobs to be done. I can't remember if we podcasted about when I, like TV, for example. But you know, mm. people would think about TV as being one market when actually there, there's multiple jobs, whether it be like education, which you sort of YouTube has competed with, whether it be live sports, which TV has kind of kept a hold on, whether it be sort of wasting time or whether it be wanting to see the same a shared sort of cultural experience. Like all these are kind of distinct jobs. And mm. you look at the TV market, all those those have been unbundled, right? I mentioned the YouTube angle. Netflix is not doing sports because it turns out that's kind of a totally different job that doesn't really fit their business model. Their business model is sort of a combination of destination shows and filler, right? Like where you just want to sit on the couch and veg and see what's on Netflix. And that's less about intentionality and more about, it's kind of closer to the Facebook sort of paradigm in many respects. But that's another example where if you just, if you only viewed the market ever as TV as it was, you would actually miss that there were actually three or four large opportunities sitting within what we traditionally thought of as being Mm. TV. 
Yeah, the interesting thing is there's a that that nuance applies inside of the, the the products and the the jobs that the products do in the industry, but the nuance also applies on the consumer side as well. And I think people like to miss it in the same way that there's a there's a almost like a lazy shorthand that leads you to compare or assume that Uber's not going to be any bigger than taxis. There's a lazy shorthand that assumes that because someone a male and 25 years old that they're going to behave exactly the same way and what you realize is that those demographic things don't cause a job to arise in someone's life they might be correlated with it but to really understand and and get to the bottom of a job inside a person's life you've got to put yourself inside their shoes and understand the problems that they face and it's not these demographic type things that cause the jobs to arise they might be correlated with it but they don't cause it and it's interesting to think that on the other side like on the individual side that there's there's an equivalent version of what you just described yeah i think it's a great point and this this sort of this reference to there being a sort of subtlety and and because that's the thing about this consumer market is at the end of the day it's it's tons of people making individual decisions but Mm. sort of in aggregate you know that's kind of where the word comes from that really matters and this week, just kind of do, you know, segue to what I wrote about is the second thought that has struck me is why is it that the, the, consumer and enterprise markets are so different. I mean, they they obviously mm. are. But, you know, when you think about the context of the internet, the internet sort of unleashed this wave of competition and within the enterprise market. And when I say enterprise, I'm not meaning just large companies, but also small and medium-sized businesses, like businesses of, of all kinds. Whereas in the consumer market, it's led to this consolidation and this sort of dominance of a few very large companies. And I think your point about the sort of subtlety and the individual decision-making really gets into that, where if you're an individual, you're just kind of concerned about getting done what you need to get done. You're going to do the search that's right, that that's easiest, that that's going to be on Google. You're going to connect with friends and family on Facebook because who wants to weed a weed a campaign to get everyone to switch a social network, you know? But you think about it, weeding a campaign to switch a social network. Well, th- that happens in businesses all the time. It's like we're going to use Slack. Oh no, we're going to use Teams. Oh no, we're going to use something else. Like there, there is actual sort of like all, all those sort of pieces go into it because you're no longer dealing on sort of the individual attack unit where people make all sorts of independent decisions independently but they but because you get these feedback loops that they all naturally sort of end up in the same place you end up with you know sort of like a bowl and all the marbles roll down to the middle or swirling down the toilet or whatever sort of analogy you want to use you end up with there's much more friction in the process and you're dealing with group sort of dynamics and, and top level decision making and a a explicit push against being aggregated, being having all your stuff mixed in with everyone else in a way that achieves this sort of incredible scale that these other companies, that companies can get in the consumer mm. space. And, and, and so that aspect of dealing with a bunch of individuals that sort of paradoxically lets them become this one massive, ginormous worldwide sort of mass that's, that companies can sort of singularly capture. The fact that enterprise is by definition sort of clumps it, it, it has led to a much more sort of dispersed and competitive market generally where the same dynamic the introduction of the internet and the the lack of friction and all those sorts of things that we've talked about have resulted in two completely different sort of uh, different worlds 
This is one of the areas where uh, you had a critique of disruption and the way that it worked inside of inside of consumer industries. And the 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 critique was that your observation was a lot of the disruption research happened inside of the world of B two B and enterprises fundamentally make. Uh, have a different approach to making decisions to consumers. Consumers, well, it, it can oftentimes be a lot more emotional. It can be a lot more like this feels right or, uh, or l- l- jobs to be done, like how this makes me appear or so on and so forth. Whereas enterprise decision making tends to be a lot more rational. Like it's much more likely that things end up in spreadsheets and decisions get made uh, in, a, in a much more rational kind of of reductionistic way but that can sometimes lead to like undervaluing user experience as one example though that's probably something that people are becoming more aware of even in the b2b world but it's just interesting to think about how that notion of the different approaches that that the buyers in these different categories take has resulted in very different outcomes in, in the way that B2C and B2B have played out. Yeah, and just to be, you know, I think we're so familiar with the terminology. When you say jobs to be done in the case of the consumer, it's like very much not like a jobby job. It's like a, like, I, I, I'm bored. Like, help uh-huh. me not feel bored job or help me feel high status sort of job or let me project right. this sort of image job. Whereas the, the and that's to say, of course, are enterprise buyers perfectly rational? No, of course not. Is there emotion decision making? Is there politicking? Is there taking someone out to golf? Of course there is. But but it's all sort of relative, right? The mm. the When I'm choosing deodorant in the aisle and I'm impacted by sort of all the commercials that I've seen and projecting a certain image that is what I want to be, there's nothing there's nothing like overtly rational about that. I'm not doing a pros and cons spreadsheet saying I want to look like a macho man, so I'm going to buy Axe body spray or whatever it is, right? It's just sort of a, it's, you just do it. it. And it's all sort of in the subconscious. Whereas at least if you're going to make a buying decision, even if it's one that's driven by emotion, you're going to at least attempt to justify it in rational means when there's sort of dollar, you know, a PL on the line or, or your, your sort of job responsibility depends on it. And not just that, but again, this idea of not just buying for yourself as an individual, but buying for a group and making decisions collectively. And, and and it just leads to these completely different dynamics. And, you know, this idea of the internet and there being why these companies became so dominant in the consumer spaces really rests on, I think, the individualized nature of every single decision. We talk about that Google is powerful because people choose to use Google. Uh, Facebook mm. is powerful because people choose to use Facebook. And yes, there's parts of them that are hard to escape. I get that. But 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 general th- that really is the rule. A- Apple is powerful. Apple makes a lot of money. App- they can charge more on their phones because people want their phones. A- and it's really individual decision making. Again, though that that without any sort of collective friction that's introduced in the process you know you break something down to its component pieces and you it's so much easier to handle so much easier to influence so much easier to push around even though it's many more things whereas if you're dealing with a collective it's it's much more difficult and and that means there's more friction sort of in the process so all all those choices are sort of individual choices about what's what's better for me the moment though you start making a choice for a group or especially in the context of a company, 
there's so many other constraints that sort of enter the decision-making process. So an obvious one is data, right? If I'm an individual, I say I use Google and Google is harvesting my data. I'm, you know, the reality is, is your individual data is not really worth anything. Like in, in, that's actually almost a very sort of concrete example of what I mean. Everyone's data in aggregate is worth billions and billions and or trillions of dollars. Any one individual person's data, no one actually wants that. Like, like no one is making decisions uh, along those lines. I mean, leaving aside like identity thieves and that sort of thing. But from a sort of marketing perspective, it, it's it's really not worth anything at all. I wrote about this in the context of data factories with, with sort of Facebook, where Facebook really does transform the data that comes in to make it something that is more valuable than that data is by itself. That's a real thing that happens, but that happens on sort of that individual basis where the individual is making a rational decision. You know, my data isn't worth very much and I get these amazing services in exchange. And the, uh, the aggregators are acting rationally in that we can create these services for billions of people and then take all that data and mix it together into being something really valuable. And, and that's the sort of the mismatch in valuation that is perfectly rational on both sides. You go in the business context and suddenly the business is much more cognizant of the value mm. to their data. And not only that, but their data is vastly more valuable to themselves than it would be to any would-be aggregator. Even if an aggregator could provide, could, could, could arise, it, it's, it's almost certain that my data as an as a entity, as a corporation, is more valuable to me than it is to basically anyone else. Yes, and these companies are going to be much more careful about letting it out because I, I mean so much like even organizations like Facebook and Google recognize that a big part of the reason that they're so valuable is because of the data that they have and now an explicit lens through which businesses view the world is what data do I exclusively have that I can use to give me a competitive advantage the idea that that a business would just give that away willy-nilly in exchange for a service it would have to be some data that they they almost are guaranteed to view as meaningless before they're going to let that out for another organization to use. Well, again, no, don't just get stuck on the sort of data, like data being like data, data for a business, their, their activities, their purchasing records, like that's actually goes into their accounting software mm. that flows directly down to the bottom lines that they have to report to shareholders and, and, and they have to have auditors come in and check it. it. It is very concretely something that is meaningful them in a way that a consumer, I go to the store, I buy willy nilly, maybe I keep a budget, maybe. Maybe I don't, but for on a consumer aspect, it like just it doesn't it doesn't really matter. I mean, of course, it matters if you have money or not. But the actual sort of fine tuned tracking, like just all the dynamics around this stuff, is just so dramatically different. It's not even about like data in a sort of a abstract sense. Uh, it's it's data in a very sort of concrete. Businesses are their data. Businesses aren't aren't people. They're they're a corporation. I mean, mm-hmm. we've decided the Supreme Court, but they're they're a corporation, right? They're they're what they're made out of is the data that they have and the decisions that they do and the products that they they have in market. Whereas people are people. The data is a byproduct of people and their decision making. And so you just think about the, the fundamental nature of them are different. And the way they'll think about not just data, I just use that as an example, but the way they'll think about all sorts of things is is just very, very different. So and so you you think about this. Why the consumer space? The reason I use data as an example is because there is a mismatch in valuation of that data. But mm-hmm. the, that mismatch is not a it's not a weird thing because again, individual data is worthless. It re, I promise you, it really is. Where, whereas 
data in aggregate is valuable. So it makes sense that individuals are not acting irrationally by using these free services because they can't monetize that data otherwise. This is the problem I have with some of these sort of like, we need to value people's data and they need to be compensated accordingly. The reality is their data is, okay, let's value it. It's zero because <laughs> that's what it is. It's valuable in aggregate. That's the mismatch. And it's not a nefarious mismatch. It's just sort of a, a reality mismatch. But, but when it comes to businesses, you can actually price the value of their data. It's somewhere close to whatever their market cap is. And, and, and so it, it's just a total, total difference. I, I think that the point around you're making around the data is, is really well made. I think it's, it's worth digging in though on a little bit more on just how this decision making process works and how it's different and how people care about such different things. The, the, you, you think about a consumer buying a car and compare that to how a business would buy a, a car or a vehicle. And just the, the, the business is going to have the lifetime value, the reliability. Um, uh, how long, like, how long is this thing going to get used for? What's the fuel efficiency? And so some of that might go into a consumer decision, but it's going to be much more around like, how does this make me feel? Do I like this vehicle? The enterprise will be buying a thousand cars too, yes, which, which right. totally changes how you think about it. It absolutely does. Now, the vehicles are relatively easy to compare. You start to do something like a piece of software where a, a user is going to be much more focused on the, the, the interface and the experience from that perspective. But you think about it from the perspective of a business and they're rolling it out, like you said, across a thousand people. It's going to be, how is this? Is this going to be hard to train people on? What's the support levels like? Uh, if we run into some weird kind of bug, are they going to be able to support it for us? The decision making process and, and like having all those things uh, drawn out and like comparing multiple vendors on these very, these, this long list of things. Whereas consumers, it's just, it is much more like a, a feeling. Does it, do I like how it looks? It's, it's, it's much more surface level in terms of the approach for better or for worse versus when businesses do it like these long excel lists of all the different criteria of things that must pass and then they get weighted and then they get added up well not even consumers i would say they probably think differently when they're buying something versus when they're using something for free and we're talking in the you know a lot of these aggregators are free so there's the level of decision making is even lower than than right. it would be with with sort of a purchase whereas you think of a consumer like oh is this going to integrate is, how is this going to work with all the software we already have you know what's what are the support costs where are the, all these sort of you know is it would be better to deal with one vendor you know sort of one throat to choke like you know i don't know that consumers are are necessarily thinking about one throat to choke when they're making sort no. of sort of decision making and the reason why this is so fascinating is what what happened sort of in the enterprise space is you did have that one throat to short aspect in part because the the aspects of decision making that were all about sort of maintenance and making sure it all work together and training sort of led to there being a few really dominant companies, you know, Microsoft, IBM, SAP, Oracle, you know, then the big sales forces and they would get in with one product and they'd have, then they'd have another product. And, and yeah, maybe they weren't the best products, but at least they all work together and you're already used to working with them. They're already in the purchasing system and all these sorts of like seemingly dumb reasons that actually end up really mattering. And, and what happened when the internet came along is the internet suddenly made uh, alternatives 
much more accessible than it would be otherwise. No longer, if you wanted to try out a new piece of software, did it have to be a top-down decision, and you have to come in, you have to get it installed in your data center, you have to integrate mm-hmm. it with all your sort of line of business offerings, all these sorts of things. No, you could literally go up with a credit card and sign up and try it out. And then teams could try it out, you could trial it, and maybe eventually you would do a company-wide rollout. But but even then, the the maintenance, the upkeep, all that sort of stuff was the responsibility of, of, of the service, because you know software as a service. They're, they're handling all that other stuff and all these aspects of decision making in the enterprise space really fundamentally changed with the internet and you have a situation where the level of competition in, in enterprise is higher than it's than it's, I, it's ever been and i think it's not even close you have competition in, in between the established players you have established players buying players we you know i wrote about sap uh, uh, acquiring uh, here's what that's a shame we weren't podcasting but uh. acquiring one of your, your former competitors uh qualtrics qualtrics thank you you worked at medallia so it's sort of same sort of the customer experience space but but and not just that but they need to they they need to be spry they need to change because there's all these other things that are made available by the internet by the lack of friction by the ability to sort of have a company you're from australia atlassian has has, has what 20 million people companies all over the world and why can they do that because the internet makes that possible without having a huge sales force without having a huge support staff without having you know sort of this huge ecosystem to make that even possible which provided the sort of scale advantage that made it very hard to break in. And again, it's so fascinating because that's the exact opposite of the consumer space where the consumer space was very fragmented because you were limited geographically. You have to go to the store and buy something. Whereas now everything's on the internet and it's worldwide and you have the additional friction of, of, of because advertising is paying for it all being free and anyone can come on that you get massive centralization and massive sort of insurmountable scale. And, and it, just the juxtaposition is is so interesting to me. It it, it totally is. I it's interesting in that this kind of snuck up on me a little bit without realizing it. I mean, I know we've talked about my history as a little bit of an Apple fanatic, <laughs> and it, and as as the last podcast, as you might argue in the last podcast, that isn't entirely gone. But that was for me always one of the reasons why I was so interested in wanting to come here this the the narrative around having an impact a positive impact in people's lives and how how technology could make such a difference and I'd always internalized that more on the consumer side and it's it's kind of happened in the last 10 years that again without even realizing it that phenomenon that you're just describing where it's not as interesting on the consumer side anymore because you have these giants and everything everything plays everything must go through and the the scale that's required and the competition kind of gets limited uh, it, it's less interesting there than it is in this flourishing ecosystem on the b2b side and uh, and some of the innovation that's happening there and the competition that's happening there i just find it fascinating in the same way that that I used to find the tech consumer stuff fascinating 10, 15 years ago. And it's so interesting to see how it's almost flipped on its head. Yeah, I mean, the, the things that I've always mentioned that I'm very passionate about are 
the you know the sort of small small scale niche businesses, right? The, the mm. ideas of the ones built on on Stripe or Square or or, or, or Shopify. And uh, I, I I have a presentation where I talk about the four S's, uh, which is subscriptions, Square, Stripe, and Spotify being these sort of foundations for these new kinds of business models that enable a sort of uh, level of individuality in business that I think is not just critical in a world of you know increased automation and and those sorts of things, but but also is it's not just going to save us. It's also going to lead us to this glorious future. I mean, not to get all Mm. over the top, but that you're right. That, that is, I think very much the, the promise of tech, the idea of making the world a better place. And it's on, it's on, it's on the business side. It's not really on the consumer side. It's on the consumer side to the extent that consumers get more choices and more availability and more things that they can buy, but they're, they're not getting that in terms of, technology software per se and the services that they use they're getting it in terms of the the things they can get the, that are enabled by technology but the companies doing that enabling are are b2b companies they're not they're not b2c companies yeah it's it's crazy it just kind of and when you go down that list like the squares the stripes the shopifys it, 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 it you internalize like all these things that are being that are springing up as a result of that and, and the products and services you get as a consumer that are that are phenomenal that that didn't used to exist and yeah that's not to dispute like that the iPhone is critical in that and like Amazon still has a very large role to play that but this idea that the way that tech is flowing through to making life better is actually by enabling businesses small businesses that couldn't exist previously to serve consumers better it it wasn't until the last couple of weeks and conversations we've had around some of the consumer companies not on this podcast but also just like reading these last couple of articles and having this conversation and and realizing where my interests professionally have taken me and I would never have picked that I'd just be working in a string of B2B companies, but they are they are so fascinating in terms of what you end up enabling um, other businesses to do that then enable consumers and and seeing the benefit of that and feeling the benefit of that as a consumer. Well, not not just that, you you can expand to big business into enterprise. You know, this idea of the dramatic increase in competition for enterprise services of all kinds. And, and that's not to say, you know, the sort of big companies like Microsoft don't have their advantages. They absolutely do. But they're having to compete far more on sort of the merits of what they offer and the level to which they help you get your job done than just the fact that they're the default and the only choice that you have. And so you see things like the user experience of software in the enterprise space is better than it used to be. Mm. Is it as good in the consumer space? No, because there's other things that go decision making. There's lots of other constraints. It's not the way you win. It's just, but it's oh, it's not, it's not inconsequential like it maybe was, you know, in the past. And so, if you think about it, I would argue people's experience of technology in their jobs, even if they're not these sort of like entrepreneurs doing these new kind of businesses that never existed before, just your normal sort of white collar worker in a Fortune 500 company, mm. I would argue your job is is better or is, is, is you're, you're more efficient and the tools you use are, are less sort of... Uh, West sort of polar, yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's actually not the word I was looking for, but probably better than the one I was looking for. In part, thanks to this sort of dynamic, and it really, you know, we've talked about this again and again. The value, like, we are both 
extremely pro-competition. And it is frustrating that in the popular rhetoric, pro-competition has somehow become conflated with being pro-big business. Because I would argue it's mm. the exact opposite. The competition comes from more businesses mm. competing for more consumers' dollars or more businesses' dollars. And that's where you actually get new things, new ideas, things that didn't exist before. Whether that be a website like Stratechery, whether that be that, that unique... Uh, thing you got a, on a Shopify powered website, whether it be your local f- farmer's market with a, with a Stripe terminal, or whether it just be better software to get your job done at work so that you don't want to pull your hair out, you know, w- w- the, the second you have to click open an application. Like that stuff really is, you're right. It is that that's where technology is actually making the world better. I mean, I, I think back to one of my first jobs, which was in an ISP and being exposed to the the interface and the way that SAP software ran back when there really wasn't much competition in the enterprise space. And then fast forward today to the experience of uh, of getting communication software and you, uh, like downloading Slack. And you, you mentioned before, you just need a credit card. Well, to start something like that, you don't even need a credit card now. The experience is such just try it and you end up using it and liking it so much and that's the basis on which competition is happening because you you like it 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 makes you that much more effective you feel it you're that much more effective in your team that you then want the advanced features that you're going to pay for like comparing those two worlds and the what that enables when you think about everyone has a job and now tech is the, the the competition where tech is really taking place is improving people, uh, enabling people to be more productive and to do things that they couldn't do in their jobs all around the world. And you, you, it's it's actually really it's really exciting. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's had it has positive feedback loops. It's not just that a Slack comes along, but you have Microsoft that tried to force like SharePoint down people's throats for mm. years and years as a center of collaboration. Then Slack comes and they respond with Teams. Which interestingly enough is actually not that good at chat relative to Slack. I, I wrote about this week, but it, it's actually the the vision of SharePoint, like this god awful monster that, that they that they kept trying to push everyone, like come to life. It's a place to put all your stuff and to centralize all your communication in a way that you can actually get your work done way more productively. And mm. and but something like Teams, it, it's funny because Microsoft had the vision, but they didn't actually figure out how to do it absent competition and that competition Mm. was unlocked and enabled and could even come about because of the internet and you can take that example of sort of of teams versus slack but that applies to category after category after category and 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 it's just i feel like you're not seeing that in the consumer space the consumer space it's like whatever innovation that these large companies sort of deign to hand down to you and, and and when usually they're copies of someone else, but they can actually monetize it because they have the advertising scale or whatever it might be. And it just seems so barren relative to what's happening in enterprise. And I think it comes back to a lack of competition. And, and this is sort of drives my increasing discomfort and concern with these large companies. Yes, it's the case that they're giving customers stuff for free. And yes, the mm. level of, 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 of it, it has made people's lives having, you know, Free email makes people. It's a good thing to have. Having, I mean, I'm not gonna like poo poo it. It's. I don't want to be that sort of person that you get something free, like the the old skit about Wi Fi mm-hmm. on the plane, right? I'm not saying it, it's not great, but I wonder how much better it could be. Particularly when you think about how much better things really are getting in the exact same industry, but it just has. It, it doesn't have this level of concentration that completely kills competition. 
I, I mean, I think that's a perfect articulation of it. Like uh, the, the, the enterprise software used to suck and then we have the internet and it, all, all the competition that it enabled in this space and now it doesn't. And then you have this concentration, uh, the, this concentration in the consumer space because of the decision-making and because of the nature of the benefits that aggregation provide, particularly for advertising-driven um, advertising driven models. And it, it, it starts to go away. And and to to demonstrate this point, you you start to think about one of the biggest innovations that Facebook's brought to market with Instagram and now with its its core app and WhatsApp, which was Stories. And that was that's something that is increasingly dominating usage on the social side. That didn't originate in Facebook. That actually originated in Snapchat, and Facebook copied it. Now things aren't looking so great for Snapchat because of the extent to which Facebook has built dominance on the user and the advertising side, but but now we're absent competition. And, 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 some, and some mismanagement on Seth's side, to be fair. You're right to point that out. But it, it, it's it's there's all this competition that we're missing. And I, I feel like, again, like this is part of why the enterprise side is that much more interesting because the, the ecosystem is that much more dynamic and people are having to respond to each other. And and it's it's just starting to die and stagnate a lot more on the consumer side. Well, the same thing. This is why the frustration with the App Store. I mean, you don't see mm. Stripe or, or, or Shopify or... or- uh, Square taking 30% of their vendors sort of <laughs> their offerings. Why? They would not be able to compete. There are There is competition out there. You can go get a merchant account and you don't have to use something like Stripe. There are alternatives. You can use PayPal. There's there, like there's lots of competition in this space where there's no way they could get, get away with that. And, and that is good for the ecosystem that it fuels because th- how many more businesses are possible when they're not giving away 30% of their revenue, right? Whereas on the App Store, because there isn't that level of competition, like what sort of apps, what sort of possibilities are not being built because uh because of that thirty percent and and even if leaving aside whether it's 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 right or wrong or illegal or illegal, it's I don't think there's any question that by definition there's going to be less innovation. <laughs> You're really rubbing in the last episode now, aren't you? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You don't I need just, to apologize. I just, I just, to, I I just thought, of, thought of a point. I wanted to make it. <laughs> I had a big grin on my face as you were. As you were <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I guess I had that one coming, didn't I? <laughs> you know, I feel passionately about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to feel passionate about. I've written this article at the end of every year, this sort of state of technology. Well, not every year. Last year I wrote about Disney and Fox because it had just gone down. But every other year. Uh, and for some respects, I, I wasn't necessarily calling for antitrust. It was more a – there's it's more of sort of frustration at the way things are. And, and I felt uh, a little – I don't like writing articles where I don't have sort of like clear sort of prescriptions about how to go forward. But more a – you know, there's a reason to be concerned about this beyond the sort of what uh, if you're, you know, you thought about this this congressional debate, and and you have folks on the right complaining that Google and Facebook and whatnot are censoring mm. them. You have folks mm. on the left complaining that Google and Facebook are not kicking enough people off or or whatever mm. it might be, and we have people debating about how the power these companies have should be used. When I would rather we be debating, are we sure we actually want this level of power, period? And, and that level of power is not just a political thing. I think that's part of it. You know, having these these tremendously powerful entities that you can – the reason why these these 
congressional testimonies are so stupid is because there's there's nothing to be done. Like yeah. you're, you're you're arguing in sort of a vacuum, weaving nothing else to do except sort of attack each other. And it, why? Because because these entities are so large, and because we don't have any sort of tools in our sort of societal and political playbook to to deal with them. It, but that that itself is a problem. That suggests there's a level of sort of bigness that is societally, I think, unhealthy. But then also bring this competition angle, like it. it I think I've, you know, I think I've made my point that I care a lot about competition and and I and I worry about sort of foregone innovation, stuff that doesn't happen that would have. And that's why, you know, I'm skeptical about regulation in the case of things like GDPR. It's another sort of success that regulation as far as antitrust and regulation as far mm. as like privacy laws have become conflated to being the same thing when in the context of competition, they're the exact opposite. One encourages competition by breaking up a dominant entity mm. that is sort of distorting a market, and one inherently discourages it by making the barrier to entry higher. Now, again, that's not to say all antitrust regulation is good. It's not to say that all sort of privacy or other types of regulation are bad. It's just, you know, by and large, take away the specifics. What are the dynamics on the market that you would expect? And they, they work in opposite directions. It's kind of, it's frustrating that they've become sort of totally confused inflated in, in people's minds. I completely agree. The, the point that you're making about the congressional hearings and the bigness, uh, I mean, I think back to part of the discomfort and where it stemmed from with, for me, like, like just to pick on an example of Facebook, the, the, it was the experience I had in Australia and seeing the concentration of the media and seeing the rise of Rupert Murdoch there, which is the first place where he kind of where he, where he, uh, achieved quite a lot of success. And one of the responses to that was, okay, we're going to put limits on media ownership in certain markets because there's recognition that you don't want one person in control of, of, uh, of all the news that's getting spread out to all the people. You want competition. You want different points of view. And you think about trying to pick that paradigm up and drop it into the social networking paradigm or drop it into a, a, the aggregation paradigm where it's just totally different. You can't say, I mean, you can, I guess, in the instance of Facebook and Instagram, but once these networks get going, you can't say, well, well, don't serve these users. These networks just grow and suck in more and more users. It's not like in the past where you could put limits on what was okay and, and what percentage of a market you could saturate before you couldn't go any further. And just thinking through how to deal with this bigness and encourage the competition that you're talking about, I, I mean, I can kind of sympathize with why you got to the point of feeling discomfort without necessarily having clear prescriptions because it's not immediately obvious how to deal with it in the environment that we're in. Yeah, and I, and I kind of had to come to grips with that and be like, you know what, it's okay to not have a prescription here. Like, we just need to be asking these questions more. And mm. something, something that occurs to me with you, with the Murdoch example, is the reason limitations could be put in is because there was a sort of ar the pre-existing limit of geography. And like, mm. there was a way to define sort of the limits of a market. And it's not that dissimilar to enterprise being different than the customer because there are definitions in the market, which like there's individual corporate entities that are make unique decisions and, and they're, they're, they clump up the market in a way that sort of cities 
and the limits of, of a newspaper mm. would sort of clump up the media market. And the difference on the internet is the complete lack of friction means it's one market. It's one yeah. massive market. And, and so I, I, I'm curious the, the way to sort of disrupt aggregation is sort of like to clump up the system, right? To get to, how can you somehow sort to combine together those individual atomic pieces? Because what happens is you have, you get atomicized consumers on one side and you get atomicized suppliers on the other, all making individual rational decisions that taken collectively lead to this massive centralization in the middle. And where you see it not working out, we talked about the music industry, for example, right? Why is it that Spotify is in such a weaker position, even though they own the consumer and all the sort of aspects of aggregation we talked about? Because the music supplier side is clumped into three companies where they are, and their their decision-making, their collective decision-making on the behalf mm. of, of individual artists is, is, again, the artists may not like it very much, but if if all artists were atomicized in the way consumers were, Spotify would be a, like a, a, a massively more powerful and valuable company than they are today. It's that clumping that sort of limits mm. it, right? And and you, that's why inter, the enterprise market generally is not subject to aggregation theory because there's clumping on the user side. And, and, and so how do you introduce clumping sort of into the market? I think gets at, I don't know the answer, but I think that starts to weed down a road to think about how do you how do you undo these power mm. structures beyond the you know oh break them up well break them up then what they re another one emerges yeah. to take over the whole market right you need to think about disrupting not just the entity at the center but the structural dynamics that lead to centralization yeah i i so first of all apologies i hate that word clumping i think i could maybe, think of a better one how about how about clustering and <laughs> uh, the interesting thing though is no, like, i'm gonna title this podcast clumping so oh okay there we go uh, the ultimate revenge um i actually it's interesting you say that like this um i'm going to stick with clustering you can call it clumping but i'm sticking with clustering this clustering there's actually been a kind of natural experiment on this front that's happened worldwide and that is the great firewall like there have been a uh, clusters have emerged geographically because china wouldn't allow the social networks to operate inside of it and it's not that that prevented those social networks from emerging L local uh, versions of them started to emerge and obviously they had unique attributes and they were different but but the same kind of thing emerged in china and it's interesting to think about that from a geographic and a legislative perspective like maybe one of the ways to approach this is to start to think about this like uh and and it will be interesting to see if countries naturally head in this direction like they don't like the way in which some of these companies are operating and they ban them or put very heavy regulations or some other requirement such that it actually favors or it, it almost creates a new market for which uh, different companies can spring up doing the same kinds of job. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I always hesitate to use the Great Firewall as any sort of uh, exemplar. It may end up being one uh, for better or worse. Mm. And also the reality is, is China, it's still a very large market that has even arguably even stronger aggregation effects. I mean, you see, I mean, the, the, the relative power of, of, of a WeChat or an Alibaba would make, mm. you know, Amazon or Facebook blush. Uh, <laughs> and, and so the, it's still, you're right. It does separate it sort of forcefully. Uh, I'm not sure maybe a better example, 
example that I would use would be sort of chat apps where the clumping mm. is kind of more around language and, and culture and certainly geography. Mm. Uh, it, it is more of a country phenomena, but where you have, you know, line in like Japan and Taiwan or cacao in, in Korea. And obviously we, we chat, we chat in China and, and I message in the U S and sort of WhatsApp yeah. and lots of other places. But, but why is there sort of more competition in the market? Well, in part because of the way, the way, different languages and different people and different folks that know each other and they, they the fact they all came up sort of at the same time whereas facebook sort of had that pre-existing graph from the the pc days that was able to sort of leverage that that right up into something greater i, I don't know again i think we're sort of flailing around a little bit in part because it's such a difficult question but it is mm. it, it, it is interesting to think about how do you introduce uh, clustering or clumping or however you like to refer to <laughs> oh, it. Look at that! Look at that nod. You're like you, the, you almost spat out that word. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I just wanted to drop the clumping, but I felt it'd be rude to at least acknowledge, <laughs> acknowledge uh, your point of view You're on this. You're so kind. Uh, uh, yeah, no, this has been good. Yeah, so we, we will. We, I guess we will leave that. A, it's an, it's an open question going forward. I, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know that the answer is antitrust. I don't know that the answer is. Uh, maybe the answer is actually the opposite. Maybe we accept that these companies are what they are and we put heavy regulation on them. And yes, that entrenches them, but at least they can't sort of, you know, extend beyond what they are into, mm. into more in different markets. Like say, take an Apple, for example, right? I think the iPhone is going to be with us for a long time. I would just like Apple to not take 30% of my Kindle purchase, uh, you know, <laughs> something along those lines. You know, that, that actually might end up being something. Something that makes sense, but we need to start thinking about these. My biggest frustration is instead of thinking about who gets to harness the power and complaining that these companies aren't using their power we wish they used in the way that we wish they used it, that maybe we should worry that that power sort of exists at all. And and the more that that becomes the topic of conversation, I think the, the better place that we will be. No, I totally agree. It's so easy for people to assume that when they talk about regulating the power in a way that's appropriate, they're assuming it's a way that's appropriate to them and they just forget that there's a way that it could get harnessed that's much worse than the way it's been used right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the it, it's like the, I've always talked about like people err by presuming that that companies when they do something, when they do something that they don't agree with, that they're being stupid, you know, they don't actually think about the full context. Like the corollary here is the right thing for a company to do on these very thorny and difficult issues of like speech and, and all in conduct and all sorts of things on these platforms. Well, what they should do is use my personal moral code mm. and obviously everything will be okay. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, it doesn't work that way when you're, when you're serving billions of users. Uh, yes, indeed. Very good. Well, I, ho- I will wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas and to you. And a Merry Happy Christ- New Year and a Happy Hanukkah Indeed. and a Qu- Happy Kwanzaa and whatever, whatever, whatever. Even if your only holiday is a few days off work, uh, and or I'm here in Taiwan, people don't even get, get they don't even get off work. It's just, it's a true shame. Oh, wow. So, well, I mean, there's why there's no Christmas here. They get Chinese New Year mm. off instead. So it's uh, see, look at oh wow, look at look at your uh, your your cultural your cultural narrowness. I know, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely true. I'm so used to it. It's like the idea of it not existing, especially with all the Christmas trees that go up around Taiwan. I just assumed it was the case. Yeah, I mean, it's the they've definitely gotten the hang of sort of. I think the uh, 
I mean, Christmas trees are fun. Christmas lights are fun. And then you still go to work on December 25th. It's <laughs> now that, like I'm used to it now, but now that I think about when I first came, it, like they, they would give like the foreigners the day off, but, uh, but you kind of wander around the city and there's, it's just a bunch of foreigners walking around. So. Yeah, that is that is very different, I admit. But yes, happy Christmas to everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, have a great break and we will probably speak to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. See you, mate. Bye. Bye.